0: We are on one road to hell. We got on it inadvertently. It turned out to be an unfortunate side effect of industrialization and you know, burning fossil fuels. We didn't intend that. Now we would be intentionally choosing this road, which we know um, is filled with risk.
1: Today I talk with Elizabeth Colbert about the possibilities and perils of geoengineering in the fight against climate change and the promise of community pioneers in the green transition. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers, and activists how to stem climate change.
0: We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency.
1: For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear.
0: The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to
1: answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B, because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today, I am speaking with Pulitzer-winning writer, Elizabeth Colbert. Colbert is a seasoned journalist. Since the 1980s, she's written for New York Times and The New Yorker magazine. Colbert first achieved international prominence when her best-selling book, the Sixth Extinction, and Unnatural History, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2014. The British newspaper The Guardian called the book the best non-fiction book ever to have been written. Just a few months ago, she published her latest book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. The book looks at geoengineering, which is the term for deliberate large-scale interventions into Earth's natural systems to stem climate change. Colbert's book explores how solving one problem with geoengineering can lead to new problems and asks the question whether the remedy makes us worse off than the melody itself. Hello. Hi there. Pleased to meet you.
0: Likewise. Very nice to meet you.
1: And thank you for doing this. It's a little bit of a reverse situation that it's the politician uh, interviewing the journalists. I know. But uh, I'm, I'm so pleased that you have the time for this. Should we get uh, started? Yeah. Okay, great. So, in your book the sixth extinction, uh, you describe the previous five mass extinction in events in in the earth history and claim that we might be on a way to to a sixth. Can you can you elaborate on on that
0: argument? Well, mass extinctions are are just defined as mom- moments in time and moments in this context can be very long periods of time in a human timescale, but on a geological timescale, they're very short. So they could be tens of thousands of years, uh, even hundreds of thousands of years. When for reasons that we sometimes feel we can pinpoint after the fact and sometimes, you know, don't Mm. when the biodiversity of the world plunges for some reason and Right now, what we have by sort of universal agreement are very high extinction rates, much higher than the rates that have pertained throughout much of geological history, except for these moments of mass extinction. So, you know, the question of whether we will reach the very extraordinarily high levels of extinction that were reached in these... Major mass extinctions of the past, the most recent being the extinction event that ended the reign of the dinosaurs, mm. that still very much remains to be seen, but that we're in a moment of very elevated extinction rates, which, if these rates continue, will lead to a mass extinction. I don't think that there's tremendous amount of debate about that.
1: And of course, what would be different with this? potential mass extinction compared to the other five, is that this one would be caused primarily by, by the human beings and our behavior.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, other extinctions There's a pretty wide consensus that the last major mass extinction, what we might call the fifth extinction in this context, the end Cretaceous extinction, was caused by an asteroid impact. Uh, and if you go farther back in the geological record, the, the biggest extinction of all time is what's called the Permian extinction. That was about 250 million years ago. And that, once again, there's a sort of emerging consensus that that was caused by a very, very severe episode of, of carbon emissions. Mm. Uh, so it's a very, um, it's a pretty strong warning signal. Uh, that we should not be throwing so much carbon into the into the atmosphere. Now, in in that particular period, you know, a, a tremendous amount of carbon seems to have been released. People have trouble figuring out exactly how, um, and it had probably occurred over many thousands of years. Nevertheless, what we're doing is probably analogous to what happened 250 million years ago.
1: So, can you describe to us? What is the worst-case scenario within the next fifty to one hundred years?
0: Well, the worst-case scenario, which you can read about it in the IPCC reports, it's sort of the high, high-emission scenario. It's you know goes by the very um, bureaucratic name of RCP eight point five or whatever, and it is a, it is a high-emission scenario. I think right now it's considered probably somewhat too high but you know, it's, it's thoroughly possible. It's thoroughly within our power as a globe. If we just keep shoveling coal out of the earth and pouring it into power plants, we could do it. There's no question about it. Um, we would have by the end of this century, uh, either have already experienced or have locked in, you know, an extraordinary amount of climate change, something like four degrees Celsius. So, um, just you know, temperatures of the Earth has not seen for, for a very very long time. We would presumably have guaranteed uh, the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. There's 20 feet of sea level rise in there. Uh, large swaths of the Earth where we now grow food would become uh, deserts. You know, the list goes on and on. It's a it's a pretty hellish uh, set of, of of events that we would have then sort of locked in?
1: Yeah, so of course it's difficult to say exactly what the consequences will be if we do experience this increase in temperature. We know it will be bad, and we know that most likely a lot of self-enhancing effects will sit in. We will hit a lot of what the scientists call chipping points. Now, you have in your book written about uh, some of these dynamics. Uh, one that I found very interesting and frightening was the dynamics of our oceans and climate change. Can you can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean the oceans are hugely important in climate change. We we are land-based creatures, so we tend to, you know, overlook them. But the oceans are absorbing, you know, most of the heat that uh, is being trapped by our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so the oceans are warming. You know by ocean standards really really fast and that is you know wreaking havoc already a lot of species are on the move fisheries are in flux because you know no one knows where fish are going to show up um coral reefs do not like this warming water at all we're seeing tremendous mortality on like the great barrier reef which is the world's largest reef um, and other smaller reefs and the other thing that's happening, which is sometimes called global warming's equally evil twin, is that we're changing the chemistry of the oceans because um, CO2, when it dissolves in water, forms an acid. You know, it's, it's a weak acid and we, we drink it all the time. We drink, you know, club soda or Coke, but it's an acid. So we're changing the, we're actually changing the chemistry of the oceans. And some scientists would argue that that's really, you know, Perhaps the most dangerous thing that we're doing because the oceans are pretty stable places and so uh, have been over historical time. And if you look at, if you do look at the geological record, that you see these episodes of ocean acidification have been associated with mass extinctions, with some of the worst chapters in the history of life.
1: Yeah, well, it's 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 frightening uh, perspectives if we if we don't manage to prevent it, of course. Now, in your your latest book, uh, under White Sky, you describe some of the possible solutions. Uh, many of them uh, falls under the category geoengineering. Can can you explain to us uh, what that term actually means?
0: Well, geoengineering. It means a lot of different things to different people. In the context of my of the of the book, I really focus on one form of geoengineering, which is um, called solar geoengineering, where you would actually take steps to put some reflective material into the stratosphere that would bounce sunlight back to space, that would have a sort of a counteract the effects of having poured, or some of the effects of having poured a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And this is considered kind of, you know, a very desperate uh, move. We would actually, you know, literally be dimming the amount of, you know, reducing the amount of direct sunlight hitting the earth. Um, But it's something that's getting more and more attention as we fail. The longer we fail to cut our emissions, uh, the, the more... I think you're going to be hearing about the prospect of geoengineering.
1: So basically the idea is that we humans have polluted the atmosphere with CO2 emissions. Now we want to try and change that. And there are different ways of doing that. One extreme way could be to release sulfate into the atmosphere to block the sunlight. This might reduce the global heating temporarily and thereby save us some time. But it would also turn the sky white white
0: waiter whiter I should I, I should be honest and say white would probably be hard to, to achieve yeah
1: most people would probably say that it sounds a bit crazy but your point is that although it sounds like science fiction it will probably be possible in the near future with geoengineering and that of course raises a more ethical question should we try and use these tools and intervene if it's possible
0: you know, the dangers are, the risks are extremely high. I mean, the idea would be under a best case scenario, let's put it that way, that you decide, the world decides to do geoengineering that even that, you know, phrase has a lot in it because we don't really have a mechanism for reaching a global decision on something like this. Um, So then that raises the prospect that some country or group of countries decides to do it and sort of um impose it on the rest of the world. And that's that's eminently possible if the countries are, are powerful enough. Um, so that is one question, just how would you ever make that decision? But you know then the question of as many people have pointed out, we don't have a planet to experiment on. We only have one planet. Now we are experimenting on it right now by dumping so much co2 into the atmosphere without having you know really thought through the consequences of that but if you then try to counteract some or all of that warming with cooling with you know reflective particles you know you're not necessarily getting a climate that is you know the same you're getting potentially some very weird climate that's warmed and cooled and and The only thing we're going to be able to do is try to model that with a computer uh, to figure out what the actual impacts will be. But there could be severe, you know, regional impacts, changes in regional weather patterns that the models don't, you know, pick up. I mean, there are all sorts of potential uh, problems here. Um, Now one thing that people will point out, and I think it's worth pointing out, is that this does happen you know, naturally, when we get a volcanic eruption, we get a lot of sulfur dioxide, uh, a major volcanic eruption, we get a lot of sulfur dioxide that does get spewed into the stratosphere. Um, the last time that happened in a very serious way was Mount Pinatubo in the, in the uh, early 1990s, and scientists were looking at that very carefully, and you get a global cooling effect, uh, and it has certain other, you know, regional impacts, but we do have an sort of natural experiments that do take place uh, in that realm. So, you know, it's something that has happened on planet Earth many times.
1: And I guess you could say that there's one school, at least within the scientists that look at possible geoengineering solutions that argue that what they're doing really is that they are enhancing natural effects that are already there. And since what they're doing is trying to remedy other natural effects that's been caused by human action, then that makes it morally justifiable. But uh, even if you accept that argument, I'm I'm still not decided uh, personally, but but even if you do accept that argument, how can we make sure, or, or rather, is there any way to make sure that we don't risk setting, starting different uh, dynamics, uh, creating effects that we have no way of predicting?
0: Well, I don't think that there's any way that we can avoid certain, you know, very profound risks. Now, one point that you know, I I guess I would make in the scientists looking and into this, and believe me, I'm not advocating. You know, geoengineering. It it you know as one person I quote in the book points out, it's it's basically a broad you know highway to hell. Um, but the question is, you have to say compared to what, right? So Com-
1: compared to another yeah, highway to hell,
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If we have two highways, you know, to hell that diverge, you know, in a yellow wood, uh, to quote the famous Robert Frost poem, you know, which which one do you take? And I think that the one the point that you you were making before is a very important one. We you know we we are on one road to hell. We got on it inadvertently. It turned out to be an unfortunate side effect of industrialization and you know burning fossil fuels. We didn't intend that. Um, now we would be intentionally choosing this road, which we know, which we know um, is filled with risk, uh, we would have to weigh the ethics and the risks potentially differently. Um, I'm not sure we're equipped to do that. uh, But that it raises, let's just say, many, many, both, you know, the questions are across the board, geopolitical. Ethical, scientific, none of them have been answered yet, and many of them, you know, cannot be fully answered until you actually did it, which is obviously not a situation you'd, you'd choose if you could choose.
1: I know from reading your book that, that you would agree that there's also, it's very different implications which technology we're talking about. I mean, one thing is to release gigantic amounts of sulfate into the atmosphere, even changing the, the color of the sky Another thing is using uh, technologies that we've actually been using for 100 years, which is uh, carbon capture and and storage, which has been used in submarines and space aircraft vehicles uh, for decades. We know how to do it. Now, if we scale it up, we can then take some of the carbon out of the atmosphere, either from a production facility or direct air capture and put it into the ground. And if we do that, that is actually a a sort of uh, geoengineering, but it's much less connected to risks, I would argue, and we can do it uh, with a pace that actually makes sense. We can, within decades, really make a difference with this technology. Would 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 you agree to that?
0: Well, those the carbon removal technologies, you know, have been grouped under geoengineering often. I think that the two are now being separated because, as as you're suggesting, they do uh, raise pretty different questions. Um, you know, getting carbon out ad- of putting carbon if you put carbon out of the air and you take it out. Uh, you know, if you get those things to equal out, then you, you should be having, you know, minimal climatic impacts. I think that the problem, you know, the problem with carbon removal is, yes, we know how to do it, but the question is doing it at scale, right? Doing anything at scale. If we wanted to do it at the scale of the CO2 that we're putting up, I mean, if we really wanted to get rid of all, you know, just put up CO2, take it out, then the size of the infrastructure would have to be the same size as the size of our fossil fuel infrastructure, which is, you know, enormous. And 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 so I don't think anyone would argue that that is particularly realistic. You, you could argue, I think the argument, uh, you know, is, okay, we need to radically reduce our CO2 emissions. There are some activities, it's extremely difficult, for example, you know, making concrete, just as a result of the chemistry of the reactions produces CO2 so could we use carbon removal to counteract you know those activities which is very very difficult to eliminate the CO2 from and i think that is potentially viable and 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 useful but to, to just Travel down the you know the road as we're talking about the road that we're on now and say oh well we're just gonna you know put it up there and take it out that I don't think is very realistic.
1: No, no, me neither. There are two reasons why it makes sense to develop CCS or CCU. Firstly. There are some types of fossil fuels that will be very difficult to get rid of in the narrow time frame that we have left. So until that happens, it is preferable to capture and and store the carbon. Secondly, if you listen to the IPCC uh, and I I think broadly uh, the scientific community, they will tell you that uh, we need uh, negative emissions to stem uh, global warming. And one of the ways to to get that is by combining CCS with the burning of biological waste, for instance. If we do that, then we will actually take carbon out of the atmosphere.
0: Yes, I think that's an extremely important point that we've already, you know, a lot of the talk about reaching climate, you know, not going above 1.5 degrees, which, you know, to be honest, we already basically are at or two degrees, which we could still hit. In theory, we could still keep average global temperatures from rising more than two degrees C uh, if we really, really put our minds to it. But most of those scenarios in the IPCC reports, now we can talk about how the IPCC does its scenarios, that's a whole other issue, but they include negative emissions, and some of them include a lot of negative
1: so, what what are some of the techniques out there that's being discussed that that worry you the most
0: for for negative emissions?
1: Yeah, or for geoengineering in in general.
0: Well, I mean, every one of these techniques, when you actually you know look at it, they they sound you know they can sound very um, you know benign, like you know there are people having saying, "Well, let's just." let's just plant a lot of trees and trees soak up a lot of CO2 as they grow. Um, they, they give it up when they die or burn. But, um, but if you, but it sounds, you know, it sounds great. Let's, just, let's just plant a lot of trees. You know, there's a lot of parts of the world that have been deforested. Let's just plant a lot of trees, but even that, which is, you know, certainly a good idea, but even that has to be looked at pretty carefully because you know the question is where are you pl- where are you going to plant all these trees whose land is that you know um, are you taking are you going to take fruit, land out of agricultural production uh, so that raises you know that that's the most sort of benign view of carbon removal but even that raises questions and then if you get to something like you were talking about like you know bioenergy with cap- carbon capture and storage which has become known as BECS you know once again that sounds Good. Like, okay, we could use waste products, or we could grow trees specifically for use in these um, Bex plants. But it it also raises a lot of questions. For example, right now there's a big fight about, you know, the European Union counting bioenergy basically as carbon neutral, which has led to people in the U.S. would say a lot of deforestation in the southeastern. In the U.S., so that if you're actually, you know, cutting down trees to burn them, in the short to medium term, you are increasing carbon emissions. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So how you do the accounting for all these things really matters, and it, they can have tremendous, you know, repercussions across the globe that you didn't anticipate.
1: And if we don't find ways of dealing with it, this, then we we risk that something we are actually doing to s- save the climate, will have the opposite effect. So so I, I totally agree with you on, on that. So basically, there's a lot of low-hanging fruits that we could pick. There's a lot of things that we can do, obviously, to fight climate change. Uh, renewable energy is cheaper than fossil energy in most places on the planet now, or at least as cheap. Uh, energy efficiency is not something that's actually expensive. It's an investment, yes, but it'll pay back many times. So many things can be done and we need to go down that path, no doubt. But there's also no doubt, in my opinion at least, that if we are to do this fast enough, if we are to really within the next decade fundamentally change how we produce and consume energy just to take one sector, we need new technology. Um, how, How do you advise policymakers like me on making the right decisions, taking into account all of the risks that you've written about, well, <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> not
1: an easy question. <laughs> it's
0: not an easy question. I mean, I think I don't. I, I suspect I don't have any insights that that you don't already have. I mean, we need, as you say, we need to do all the things that we know how to do, we need to do them, you know, very fast. Um, and we need to also innovate and how you you know unfortunately just because you need a technology just because you need something it doesn't necessarily mean it exists but humans are you know very very clever that's one of our you know our our strengths and our weaknesses at the same time and i think that um you know targeted investments obviously obviously a lot of what denmark you know has done in terms of both you know tax policy and investment policy um, we can hope will fill in those gaps where right now you know we don't we simply don't have the technologies that we need I mean I think that your point and and I think that Denmark which has really you know been a, a leader in a lot of ways in taking actually taking action um, has shown how much can be done with the technology we already have. So I don't know the figures, but if the U.S., you know, had invested as big a proportion of its GNP and had was producing the same proportion of its energy electricity from renewable sources as Denmark, you know, we we the U.S. would be in a lot better shape. So you know, I I think it's important to also focus on what we can do with what we have. And as we deploy, one of the lessons also of this, you know, of the last 20 years is that as you deploy, you you learn, I mean, there's learning through deployment and costs come down, et cetera, et cetera. Now those technologies, you know, like storage technologies, which are going to be extremely important, a lot of people are working, a lot of smart people are working on that, you know, whether we will get the breakthroughs we need in time I can't, I can't tell you, but certainly there's a lot we could be doing even with what the technologies we have right now that we're not doing, clearly.
1: No, but that's a great point. And if we develop new solutions, technologies, that others can also use and will use, then it makes a, a difference. And we've, we've done this uh, previously on offshore wind. We were the first country in the world to build an offshore wind farm. I know that you've visited the island of... Of Samsung.
0: Exactly. I was just talking to the folks in Samsung, um, Søren Hermanson, just the other day.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: Yeah. So I have a lot of um, a lot of admiration. I mean, that was a case where you know something citizens really took into their own hands, uh, proving that something could be done, and it's a very inspiring example i think for the world and sadly but but sadly i should say but sadly i think it um it hasn't been replicated in too many places and it it could be uh but it takes a lot of work and and i i i'm sad about that cuz i went to Samsung like you know 12 years ago and i still think it would be hard to find another community that has uh, replicated that
1: well maybe i should just clarify for the listeners that samsu is an example of a Danish island that has been uh, pioneering the green transition. In 1997, Samsui won a national competition and became Denmark's renewable energy island. Over the course of the following 10 years, from 1997 to 2017, the island of Samsui transformed its energy supply to become self-sufficient through the use of renewable energy energy. And they are now heading towards phasing out the use of fossil fuels altogether by 2030. Yeah. So basically when tv crews from all over the planet visit the island to make the story what they always want to film is of course the wind turbines but cern that you mentioned who is the director of the energy center he always takes the camera crew to visit a farmer and sit in his kitchen and have a cup of coffee because that's where the real decision is made that's what makes the difference that it's something that's been created bottom up yeah and that of course then leads me to to ask you a a, a very difficult question but it's It's about the paradox that if we want real change that really matters, like we have on Samsung, and I would also uh, argue uh, in in Denmark as a whole, you need it to basically come from the bottom up. That's probably the most ideal way. But what we've been talking about in this last 30 minutes are huge, massive, big-scale solutions where we as countries, maybe even as a planet... All countries on this planet combined try and change the whole constitution of our atmosphere. You see what I'm saying? It, it's a how how do how do we make this work?
0: I, it's it's a really really tough one. I mean, if if solving or dealing with climate change were were easy, I, I do think we would have done it. And it also gets back to you know, it gets back to the. You know, just incredibly profound questions about our whole economic structure and also geopolitics. There is a lot. There are a lot of countries, entire countries. I mean, Denmark. You could argue. I don't know what your exactly what your situation is, but I don't think you have a lot of fossil fuels. Um, and so, in some sense, you're you're fortunate that you didn't have. No one had great economic interest in perpetuating fossil fuel use. In the U.S., in Saudi Arabia, in Russia, there are a lot of fossil fuels and a lot of people whose livelihoods uh, depend on, you know, pulling them out of the ground and putting and scooping them off. And that, that, those geopolitics are really hard. Um, the question of whether the developing world can develop without taking the same path that Europe and the U.S. took and China took to become industrial powers. All of these questions are unfortunately, in my mind, very open questions. We don't know the answers to them Um, and the best we can do, you know, what we have to do is try and act on the belief that this is possible and act to prove that it is possible. Um, but the answer is going to remain unknown, you know, sort of in, until we do it. Has that, and and that is once again why I give Samso a lot of credit for having said, "Okay, is this possible? Let's find out. Let's let's try it." And 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 that I I admire that.
1: Well, I I definitely also admire it, and I I think you are pointing to one of the main challenges that we that we face, which is. How do we make sure that this is a, a just transition, a people-centered transition? Uh, we we do actually have a substantial oil and gas production in, in Denmark, but we have.
0: Okay, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry.
1: But don't 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 be. But we have actually just decided uh, a few months ago that we uh, want to put an end to the extraction of oil and gas in 2050, and we stop all licensing, all new licensing rounds from now. This is obviously – it's not an easy decision, to be honest with you, because, you know
0: – This is, this is North, North Sea oil.
1: Yeah. And the reason it's not easy is be- exactly because of the, the problems that you mentioned. Uh, we have thousands of people uh, employed in this sector. So the, the answer to it, I guess, is governments also need to take responsibility for the people losing their jobs. And it's not enough to say that, well, don't worry, we'll create more green jobs than than jobs in the fossil sector. Because if it's not for the same people and in the same parts of the country, it doesn't really matter to the people losing their jobs.
0: Yes, and that's a huge um, short-to-medium-term short to problem, and people are very skeptical of um you know, of, of that idea, oh, I'll just find a, a job somewhere else. They, they realize that, you know, their skills are not transferable, you know, necessarily to a new industry. And that's very scary. And I completely empathize with that. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist and print journalism is, you know, dying for all sorts of, of reasons. And I understand how scary it is to be, you know, part of an industry that you think is be, being, you know, dismantled while you're, you're still in it. Um, you know, that being said, there's going to be dislocation. That's, that's the way it goes. And um, we're going to have to, as you say, try to make that as, you know, as le- le- the least, do that in the least painful way possible. But the alternatives are just too grim. I mean, the alternatives of, you know, people not losing their jobs so that we can continue to extract fossil fuels. It's just not, you
1: know, it's not, not it's not possible. possible. (laughs) No, of course not. Of course not. I mean, sometimes you, you also need to look at what are the, what are the opportunities of making this transformation? Because for instance, with, with offshore oil, well, actually it's not that difficult finding jobs for the people in offshore oil in the same part of the country, because offshore wind, which we are now massively investing in, needs many of the same skills from the workers. Even uh, carbon capture and storage—you know—we might have the exact same people that used to pump oil and gas out of the uh, out of the ground will now be pumping it the, the carbon the opposite direction. The same companies, the same people, now making money, saving the planet instead of the opposite uh and and we do believe that that's possible but probably not if we don't politically create first of all the economic incentives for doing it but second also the the the, the training and the, the creation of new skills the education of of the workforce that that will be needed in any case that for me also is something that we need to focus on politically so this needs to be taken aboard. I think, also on, in the political discussions. It's not enough to talk about subsidies for for renewables and sub- and cutting subsidies for fossils and all of the things that we normally discuss on, on the global stage. We also need to make it people-centered.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that, you know, and this is another place where maybe Denmark will lead the way. I mean, policies that... Um, you know, move things in a certain direction are incredibly important. And I remember when I was on SAMHSA, one of the policy decisions that had really made that project possible, and then and then there were changes, and p- some people were very pissed, to be perfectly frank, um, were, you know, lock-in contracts for wind. Right? Like, if you put up a turbine, you were guaranteed a certain rate of return. And people, you know, farmers did that, and they bought in, and then, you um, when the 10 years ran out, or I can't remember how long the contracts were for, uh, and the price went down, you know, pe- people were annoyed. So so there has to be, you know, consistency, I think. There has to be policies that, you know, it's like a huge battleship. You're trying to steer it in a new direction, and you can try to steer it that way, but you have to be... Um, cognizant of the fact that it's going to take a long time to steer that ship and you're going to have to, you know, on the one hand be willing to adapt your policies if they're not working, but on the other hand, live with things for a while because um, it's not going to happen overnight.
1: That's true. Elizabeth. thank you so much for taking the time, it's been a very interesting conversation. I will keep reading uh, the fantastic magazine that you work for, The New Yorker, uh, with pleasure. Uh, Thank you so much.
0: Oh, Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.